this morning, as, um, um, as we begin, uh, we are wrapping up our series this morning. All the kids should be rejoicing. Emery, I know, will be. We'll be putting Christian away, our good and dear friend who is falling apart on us. And his fly is undone. That's an accident. <laughs> Happens to the best of us. So we are wrapping up this series. Next week, we will, beginning, uh, we will begin a series on Daniel. Um, we'll go, be going through the, the first few chapters of Daniel, the first six chapters, and, and talking about those stories. But this morning, we kind of wanted to, we wanted to capstone all of this and wrap it up for you. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please turn them to Ephesians chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. Turn on your phone, pull one out of the pew in front of you. Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 18 and 19 this morning. Uh, and I uh, translated it for you in my own sort of way. And so it'll be slightly different than what you have in your Bible, but I, I trust the gist will be the same. <clears throat> so Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 19 begin thus. Through all prayers and pleas, praying at all times in the Spirit, and keep vigilant in all steadfastness, and pray for all the saints, and on behalf of me, in order that I might be given the word, opening my mouth in boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now the armor of God technically, begin, technically ends at verse 17 of Ephesians. There are no more pieces of armor attributed to Christian um, philosophy, theology, Christian practices and principles. But Paul kind of continues on here without seeming to, to make a complete stop. In verses 18 and 19, he begins to explore a prayer, and he connects it to his larger section here. And I, I want to connect this bit about prayer to the armor of God because I think the pericope belongs together. And you'd notice these, this line here, and keep vigilant in all steadfastness. You might have, be alert, you, your Bible might translate slightly different, um, because this text is actually kind of tough to translate from Greek into English, but the gist is the same with all of it. It's obvious that a soldier in battle would need to stay alert, would need to, to keep awake. You can't fall asleep when you're on the battle lines. You need to have that steadfast vigilance, because if you're not steadfastly vigilant, what's going to happen? Your enemy is going to overrun you, right? You're going to get overrun by the enemy and you're going to fall and your unit's going to fall. Or you're going to lead your unit into a trap and or an ambush and, and, and the whole thing will come apart and you will, you will perish. And so how then this, uh, keeping, this, this section on prayer connects to the armor of God is simply this, that prayer is the avenue, prayer is, is the way, prayer is the capacity by which we are able to stay alert, to stay awake, be able to spot traps, be able to see the schemes of the devil laid before us so that we can march on and remain firm and strong. So we have all of these necessary pieces of armor. We have, uh, the, so, uh, we have the, the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shoes, fancy dancing shoes of the gospel of peace here. We have the lightsaber of the spirit, which is missing. Don't let that happen to you. Um, if I were writing this, or if I, was, if I was doing this in all deference to Paul, I think I would, I think I would do it differently. I think I would, in fact, uh, attach prayer to my modern daily armor, namely this, I would say, drinking the coffee of prayer 
be vigilant. Because because in the same way that that coffee uh, wakes us up, the same way that coffee keeps us awake, the same way that coffee is delicious and the object of much joy and rejoicing in our lives, so I commend all of you to caffeinate yourself with prayer. And here is... uh, Here's Christian's, I tried to tape it to his hand, but his arm fell off, so that didn't work. He's taken a beating. It's been a rough, rough few weeks for him. Now, of course, I'm being somewhat playful, but I hope that the, the point is made. I hope that you understand what I'm getting at here, that just as prayer is a daily part of our life, it is essential to our life. It is the thing that keeps us sober. It's the thing that keeps us awake. It's our daily connection to God. And again, what's interesting about our text here is that this all stands as as a warning again. Isn't it interesting? I mean, we began this whole ordeal. We began all of it here with a warning. It it tells us uh, to beware, to stand against the schemes of the devil, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Paul begins this whole bit of the armor of God with with a very stark appraisal of the situation of the average I mean, the everyday, not, not an elder, not a preacher, not a youth minister, not a, not a super Christian, just the average everyday Christian, you are in a battle for your life. He begins with this honest appraisal, and he ends with another honest appraisal. So keep vigilant. Be awake. Be watchful. Be ready. I'm warning you now. I'm trying to lay before you the laws of life and death so that you might choose life and live, so that you might be able to stand in this battle. And I am just just beside myself lately as I watch folks that I used to call brothers and sisters falling by the wayside. I see the casualties rise. I see those who believed in truth now turning away from it, turning to falsehood. And what scares me even more than that, because those are those sort of things that stand out to me starkly and obviously, is not the big capital F falsehood or the big capital H heretic, but the way in which our churches are just birthing forth apathetic Christians. People who are not full of the Spirit. You notice that. Again and again, the Spirit is invoked, and the Spirit is what power. The Spirit is life. The Spirit is presence. The Spirit is God moving in you. And can we really say that the Spirit is moving in our churches? Or are we just comfortable? We sang this song. Uh, Paul really challenged me, I think, more than this message challenged me this morning. We sing this song, I Surrender All. And I suddenly found myself sitting there as we were singing this song, really terrified at that prospect that I would surrender all. Which makes me wonder then if maybe I've never really surrendered all. If it's so scary. And this week, um, I was reading an article uh, about Andy Stanley. Some of you might know of him. He's Char- Char- Charles Stanley's uh, son. He has the biggest, one of the biggest churches in, uh, in America. His church is in Atlanta. It's like 20,000. Like they built, like the city of Atlanta built an on-ramp for his church. That's how big this behemoth is. I can't imagine. My uncle goes there. I need to go down and, and see this thing. Uh, but he got together with a bunch of his mega church, like the, the cream of the crop of America. And together they said, the way that you ought to preach is not exegetically. 
We need to stop preaching verse by verse, which is what we've actually been doing for the, the past series. Because of this, he had a lot of things to say, and most of it was trash. But this, I think, this, I think, struck a nail. He said, the reason we don't preach exegetically anymore is because when football season comes, and I preached on verse 15, football season comes and you're not there for 16, 17, 18, or 19, and then you show up for 20, you don't know what happened in the middle, so we can't preach exegetically anymore. And I thought to myself, dear God in heaven, this man is absolutely right. Twenty years ago, an average Christian, average Christian, Regular attender, attended church twice a week. Right now, statistics, most people consider themselves a regular church attender if they come to church, gather with the believers, worship God in the presence of the believers once a month. Statistics and don't seem to lie on this. And so I, I, stand, I stand back and I just stand, I just stand heartbroken as I look at all of this situation we find ourselves in today. I stand back and I, I read this text, this thing that warns us of this great and terrible battle we've fallen, uh, we've been placed into, and all of this stuff that God has set us up with, that he's equipped us in every way that we might be ready to fight the good fight, to keep the faith, to finish the race, and yet we can't remain awake. We can't be vigilant. We can't be counted on. We can't be found in worship because we're too busy with other things. There's so many other things to do. And it, uh, it concerns me because as we see these people falling by the wayside, as you see your friends and Christians, do, friends who you call Christians falling by the wayside, what they do, when you fall in battle, you won't, don't then just sort of step out. And this is what I've noticed about Christians. They don't step out and say, after they've sort of said, you know, like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm either not a Christian anymore or I'm not going to believe sound doctrine. I'm going to start believing lies and falsehood. They don't step back and say, well, you, go, you guys fight it out. Do what you want to do. No, they step in on the other side don't they? And they come after us. They come after you, try to convince you that they have what's right. And the scriptures have warned us of this. Second Peter 3.17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you've just been informed, you know it beforehand. If it hasn't happened to you already, take care that you are not carried away by the error. And it's so interesting how often we hear this word commandment and lawlessness in the scriptures, in the New Testament. Right? The one that's supposed to be all about love and gospel and forgiveness and there's no, we don't have to worry about hell or, or law or anything like that anymore. No, he says, you got to watch out for lawless people. For what? You will lose your own stability. And if there's one thing I could say about the church today, it is that we are not stable. We're kicked back on our heels. We're, we're backing up. We're afraid. We're fearful. We're no longer standing strong. We're no longer standing on the word of God and saying, come hell or high water, I'm not moving here. No, no, we're shrinking. How pitiable the life of the Christian who wanders into error, who rejects sound doctrine, who willfully turns from the way of the Lord. Read these words, and these are words that I read to every person who ever comes to me and says, I think I want to become a Christian. I say, we start here. We start here. If after you have escaped the defilements of the world, world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and you again become entangled in them and overcome. Did you catch that? Everybody with me? 
The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better, it would have been better for them to never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. How much more pitiable then is it for you and for me and for other Christians who have been captured by those who have been captured by falsehood, that we're once removed. We don't even hear the best argument of it. We're pulled away by friends or neighbors. People say, hey, listen, I've got something. It seems pleasing. It seems good. It makes sense, and it, it sets us in a way that we're not running contrary to our culture, but rather we fit nicely in this spot, and we can live successful, happy lives together, and we don't need to worry about commandments or laws or truth or, or eternity. We don't have to worry about these things anymore because all we need is love but the end therein is death and a few weeks ago one of the members here uh, said to me about the previous week that I had fallen into angry Jordan mode <laughs> and, and he didn't mean it as an insult he was, he was, he was making a joke but I, I can see how my words might come off angry I could see how this would sound angry to somebody because these days we have spent so much time patting ourselves on the back and assuring ourselves of our own security that it's hard to hear a message that says you aren't secure. And we have peppered our messages with this word love, 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 love without any kind of definition, just sort of leaving it out there so that you could define it on your own terms. And I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to let you do that. And you're so used to sermons about uh, messages about seven ways to this and five ways to have a healthy that or ways of feeling better about ourselves that, that I, I probably come across as somewhat like intolerant and archaic. Uh, old man in a young man's body. A grumpy old man in a young man's body. And I'm okay with all of that, but these are not angry words. These are not angry words that I have. And I don't, I don't present them as though they don't absolutely have something to say to me. And I don't present them as though they're sort of the, the rantings of a crazy person against Hollywood or the government or against liberals or conservatives, for that matter, since I'm neither, against a real or perceived enemy. No, I am a brother that is speaking to his family. You need to be vigilant. And if you aren't vigilant, you will fall. It's a fact. And so I warn you with the warning that has been warned to me that we have to be strong in this battle. We have to be strong in this fight that we have to put on not some, not a bit of, not a piece or two, but the whole armor of God. And without the whole armor of God, we will be pierced by the flaming arrows of the evil one. And without remaining vigilant in prayer, without staying awake, if we fall asleep, we are doomed. This is the message of the scriptures. It's been handed down to us. And I am just perplexed these days by the fact that we don't believe it or we don't live like we believe it. Why is that? It leads us to this important question, I think. As a church, if we as a church fall asleep, there is no more power. There is no more prayer. And if there's no more prayer, you notice that in the text that we read here in verse 18, there is no more Holy Spirit. And if there is no more Holy Spirit, there is no more God. Did you hear that? Without the Holy Spirit, which is the presence of the living God in the church, there is no God. And we are on our own. And that leads us to an important self-analytical church-wide question. Is there power in this church? 
Is there movement in this church? Is the Spirit convicting and drawing and, and, and filling us with joy and love for one another and love for God and love for a broken, lost, bleeding, dying world? Is the Spirit moving here? Because if the answer is no, then we go back to the beginning and maybe we ought to be praying some more. And the answer, I think, or the question then comes to you as an individual, as a person, Because what happens if one person in the line of soldiers who have their shields all set up, what happens if one person steps back and says, you know what, I think now is a good time for a nap. There's a hole now in our line. And the line, with that hole in line, there's a place for the enemy to come and just rushing in and to take us all. And so what we see then with the individual, with you, once you have fallen asleep, once you have not remained wakeful in prayer, you become a threat to the hole. You become a cancer. You become a a disaster. You become a threat to the health of the whole. And we have to cut you out. That's where church discipline comes in. That we can't allow one line, one chink in our armor to grow weak. And together we have to hold one another accountable so that we might be vigilant. Because this battle is life and death, folks. Life and death. And those are fierce words. And I pray that we would take them to heart. Because as we wrap up this text, if you walk away from this without sensing the very real situation we find ourselves in, then you walk away missing the point of the text altogether. And it isn't to fill us with fear. It isn't to fill us with self-deprecation. It isn't so that we can say, oh, woe is us. We're such a terrible church. No, it's to fill us with courage. It's to fill us with strength. It's to put the the glasses on so that we could see the world as it is. And once we see the world as it is, we would immediately just pick up all this stuff and throw it on, grab your coffee, and go to battle. Right? Yes? We should be full of the Spirit and excited. We get to fight the good fight. And God has equipped us to fight that good fight. We get to finish the race. And we know that at the end of the race is what? A crown of glory. You want that crown? Fight the fight. I think uh, Petra put it best in 95. 95 was a good year for Christian music. There are idols to be worshipped, and there are giants in the land. And they'll drag you down and attack your faith and slay you if they can. So let your heart be filled with courage. And strengthen the Lord. What did David do when he saw Goliath coming at him? Do you say, well, man, that's a big dude. Think I'm out. Did he say, you know what, Saul, let's, I, I realize that this armor is, is pretty heavy and, and I can't carry. Let's find a smaller guy in the army and I'll, I'll carry his sword. I mean, there's more than one guy in that army, right? He could have found armor that fit him. He could have found a sword that he could have lifted. But what did he do? He said, I'll go as I am because it's not about me. I'm not going to kill this guy. God is going to bring him down because he has come against the mighty God and God will use me. Church, that's you. God wants to use you as small or as big, as young, as old, as rich, as poor. Whatever it is that you find yourself in, God wants to fill you with his spirit so that he can set you loose on the world. We aren't scared. We aren't full of fear. We aren't shrinking back. We are forgiven and empowered to do battle. So stay awake and do battle. So it is that prayer acts as our, as our wakefulness 
And how often the scriptures tell us to be awake. How often we read these, these words, this, this, and, and, and Jack talked about it, praying continuously. How often should we pray through all prayers and please, some of your Bibles might say supplication or entreaties, that word can be translated a number of ways. Praying at all times. How often? All times. I even gave it to you. I put it up on the board. How often? All times in the Spirit. Be full of the Spirit. And isn't this, isn't this the Lord's rebuke to the disciples? Jesus goes off and he travails in prayer. I mean, he's praying deeply, as Jack talked about earlier. And he comes back, and what are the disciples doing? Who remembers? Sleeping. They've dozed out. Long day. Jesus has talked a lot, right? You think, I'm long-winded. Read John 17 and 18, right? Jesus is going on for a long time. They stretch out and they they fall asleep. And what does Jesus say? He says, can't you stay awake for an hour and prayed with me? Prayed that your souls would not fall into temptation. Didn't I teach you that? To to pray that way. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Couldn't you have done that for an hour? And he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Isn't it? What about us, church? Is your spirit willing? Have you allowed your flesh to weaken? I think we have. I I think as I look at the disciples, we say, man, disciples, you really missed a golden opportunity right there. But how much more do we have than they had? We have been filled with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. We have the Scriptures in our hand. We have the long view of history. The disciples, I mean, they just think Jesus is talking, and they're tired, and they just go to sleep. We know now the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story. We've been given all of this, and we have more time, more free time than any generation previous. We have more access to teaching than any generation previous. We have more than any generation previous, period. And yet we, as a people, as a church, are less less likely to pray than any generation previous because we've been convinced that we can do everything through us who strengthens us. Doesn't sound quite right. Seems like the verse said something different, and I I think that perhaps that's because we've forgotten what prayer is all about. We've forgotten its power and its life. And so I want to give you a few verses and talk about what prayer looks like. First is this one, and you might, I didn't put them on the notes. I probably should have. I apologize for that, but you might want to scratch these down and read these. Let's talk about what prayer does, and here's, here's four examples. First Timothy 4, 4 through 5, which says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy. It is sanctified, some of your scriptures will say. It is made holy by the word of God, see last week's sermon, and prayer. Do you catch what that means? That means that everything that you come into contact with, every person, every possession, every job, every car, every moment, every situation, everything that you run into could be made holy if you prayed over it. That's an incredible thought. Every conversation that I have could have been holy. God could have used it for his own glory, but I failed to pray. Every object, every tool that I bought to fix something could have actually been then turned over and used to further the kingdom of God. You think of the Old Testament and how they had to go through all of these processes, these ritual washings to make things sacred for God's kingdom. And yet now, what do the scriptures tell us? All you need to do is invoke Jesus over it, and that suddenly becomes powerful in kingdom work. How many things have we left undone because we didn't take the time to stop, as Jack said, that 12 seconds to offer a prayer over it? 
You have the power to make something holy. If you'd pray, that's an incredible thing. James 5.15, the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We'll pause over that for a second. The prayer of faith will heal the one who is sick. We have such a, such a long prayer list of sick people, don't we? And yet we so rarely see healing come to them. And I wonder if it's not because, I, I, you know, I, I just have to wonder if it's because we don't pray enough. Like, I, I really do. I, I think that we think that we pray a lot, but I don't know that we do. When was the last time you picked up that long-term prayer list and spent an hour praying over those people, just praying for them one by one, even if you don't know them? It says they've got cancer. Pray for them. When was the last time that you did something like that? I went to the hospital. I mean, our elders visit those who are sick. I know that. But mass emails go out, and I know most of you check your emails. When was the last time you went to the hospital, just knocked on the door to see Jeanette and say, Hey, Jeanette, let me pray over you. Let me take 15 minutes and just pray for you. I mean, let me take 30 seconds and pray for you. And maybe we don't see people healed because we aren't actually praying. And when we pray, we pray with the kind of equivocation of saying, well, maybe, you know, I don't really know that this is going to happen. Do we pray with the faith that God has the power to heal? Because I have friends in other countries, in missionary countries, situations, they pray for people and people are healed. But there's faith there in God because there isn't room for faith in self. We also see that prayer covers sins. Prayer covers sins. We could pray for one another that sins might be forgiven, that lives might be changed, that people might be healed of their sins. How often have we let those things fall through the crack, fall through the cracks? Second Corinthians uh, one verse eleven. I like this one. You must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. You see that. You must help us by what? Prayer. Now Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He's not there. He's written them a letter. And he is far away from them. And he says, listen, what I need from you is I need you to pray because through your prayers you will bless me. You will bless me. And we have the opportunity to pour God's spirit into other Christians via distance. We can pray for someone and they can be blessed through our prayers. When was the last time you prayed for somebody that you haven't seen in a while? That we should be filling our lives with prayer. And in each, each one of these instances is very different, right, that we've gone through so far. You could write them all down and make lists. And if you made lists of all the people who would fit into each one of those brackets, you would have 24 hours of prayer guaranteed. So don't tell me that you don't know what to pray for, because I'm giving you a list now, right? So please, pick up, pick up the, uh, the directory and just pray for people. Go through the directory and pray for them. I could really use your blessings. I love that. I love what Paul says here as well. Because he says in Romans 8, 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit... Oh, wrong one. Nope. Look in your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 6, because that's where we are. In our text this morning, um, verse uh, 19, well, end of verse 18, where he says, making supplication or praying for all the saints, verse 19, and for me also that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Did you catch that? Paul doesn't think that it's his own 
It's his own um, abilities, it's his own creativity, it's his own mind that's going to lead him to a place where he will explain the gospel to somebody else. He says, I need you to pray for me so that my mouth might be open so that I can declare the mysteries of God. How often do you pray for me, for instance, proclaiming evangelism? How often do you pray for elders who are charged with teaching and with preaching as well. How often do you pray for our youth leaders, for, for Christina and for Laura and for Judy and for Ken and for all of the people, many of you that I forgot to mention, who, who volunteer, who, for Tara and the people in the nursery who are reading little Bible stories and spending time with our little ones, giving them Jesus before they even have the words to speak. How often are you praying for one another that God might open up your mouth so that you can declare the mysteries of God because it's not by your power, by your cleverness, or by your ability that you will convert someone from death to life or bring to them the mystery of the gospel of Jesus. It is because the Holy Spirit fills you, empowers you, and sets you loose. And it's only through that that someone comes to life. When was the last time you prayed for that? We have a whole list of missionaries. We've got a whole bulletin board out there. Like two sides of missions and missionaries that we send money to regularly. When was the last time you picked it up and you prayed, hey, listen, Joshua Barron. That's my friend who's a missionary. He's good, though, too. Joshua Barron. God, open his mouth so that he can declare in Messiah the mysteries of the gospel. When was the last time you did if we are sending these missionaries out into the world, should we not empower them through prayer? And this last bit, this last one is my favorite because it scratches my deepest itch. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we ought to pray for as we don't know what to pray for as we ought. For the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Ponder that for just a moment. What does that mean? That means that there are moments in your prayer life where you don't know what to pray for, maybe because you don't know what's going on in that person's life. If you went through the directory, I guarantee you won't know what's going on in every person's life. I wouldn't know what's going on in every person's life. You don't know what to pray for. Or maybe there's a situation where it's so deep, it's so painful, it's so... Um, it's eating at you that you don't have the words to fill it up. And what happens, this text says, is that the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the Holy Spirit, God himself, fills what is lacking in your prayers. Do you want to know God? Do you want to come close to God? The closest you can come to God at this moment before we see him face to face in that time, right now, is to interact with the Spirit. And it says here, the Spirit comes upon us when we pray. What's your deepest hunger if it's for God? The real and living presence of God is found right here. When we are praying for all the saints, when we are praying with boldness, and so prayer uniquely connects us to God in a way that nothing else does. And if we are lacking in power, if we are lacking in spirit, if we are lacking in the presence of God, it is because we are lacking in prayer. And I think that this also highlights why Paul doesn't attach prayer to part of the armor of God, because in all of these armor of God pieces, we are cooperating. We're cooperating with God. In prayer, we are not. So let me explain. The belt of truth, God is the source of all truth, right? God gives us, the, Jesus says, my word is truth. God gives us the truth. He's the source of it. But I have to decide to put it on, right? Everybody with me? You still awake? 
I have to decide to accept it as truth. I have to decide to inculcate it in my life. I have to decide to root myself in it. And I have to decide to declare it. I have to cooperate with God in the receiving of truth. In prayer, not so much. In prayer, I get on my knees and say, God, help me. Or God, thank you. And I allow God to fill up the middle. I turn it over to the Lord. And therefore, when we talk about spiritual formation and becoming mature Christians, prayer is the centerpiece of that. Prayer is the truest act of faith because it is in that moment where I say, I am not in control of this thing. I cannot do this thing. I need you, God, to step in and do it. That's what prayer does. And if you're looking at your text in verse um, 17, uh, sorry, 18, Praying at all times in the spirit with prayer, with all prayer and supplication. That word there could be entreaties. You might have, um, I don't know, something else. Uh, um, Please is how I translated it. And and so what's going on here is you have prayer, which is just kind of the regular, uh, this run of the mill. I'm I'm just I'm praying things. I'm help me with the day, keep us safe, whatever you might want to add in there. You're praying a regular prayer with this supplication or this plea. This is intense. This is distressed prayer. This is God. I need you. I'm in deep, deep trouble, and I need you to intercede for me. And so what's the point here? Paul is saying in all regular mundane prayers and in all extraordinary times of great need, whatever you find yourself in in this moment, give it over to God. Let God take control of it. Let God have it. I think that's, uh, I think that's what's happening here. And that's what God is calling us to do. That's what Paul is talking about us doing. And I think that's important because we have to begin with a belief that God might answer with letting the person die. That God might answer with not taking you from the trial. That God might answer by setting you into a deeper, more fearsome form of trial. And that we begin here with this belief that God's sovereign will is over the situation. And what I mean by sovereign will is, I mean that God has the long view. God can see what happens at the end of this story. I can't see what happens at the end of this story. And so God is able to, to help us in that way in that if I put my trust in him, the prayer of faith will bring me to his good conclusion. You see the difference, I hope. And Jesus uh, began with the, Lord, take this cup from me, which is a prayer that we ought to be able to have. God says to give him all of our entreaties, all of our requests. Bring all of your requests to God. Lord, take this cup from me. But the, the prayer of sovereign faith is different because Jesus ended his prayer with not my will, but your will be done. And that's, that's the difference of the, person, difference of the person who prays with faith. And I think that that's interesting because prayer is unique in that situation. Prayer is unique in how it affects our lives. I remember... Um, I remember as uh, the, the prayer, or the prayer, the hurricane in Haiti, is it, what was it called? Does anybody remember? It was a couple years ago. Do you remember that? And like went through and devastated him. He just like destroyed the whole country. And Christians were, were talking about praying together and they were gathering in prayer and doing fasting. Prayer. Even people went down there to, to pray for the people that were there. And what was interesting is they caught flack for that. And we see atheists, I follow a lot of atheist blogs, and it's very interesting stuff. And, and, and they catch a lot of, they send a lot of flack our way for, for praying and thanking God for the healing of somebody. They say, thank a doctor, right? Because a doctor did something. Your prayer did nothing. If you want to be helpful in our world, you need to do something. 
do something about it, right? And that's what's interesting about this constant command that we have to pray. Pray at all times. Give all prayers and supplications. Pray, 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 pray. Because to the world, we couldn't stick out more sorely in that moment, right? Do something. But the Bible assumes that prayer is doing more than doing. And what's interesting about that is that one of the things that we could do is we could fill that space with all kinds of movement, with all kinds of activity, with all kinds of action. We could step in that gap and say, well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to fix it. And God, hey, come along and help me out. Do I need to explain why that's a bad idea? Is that self-evident to you? We don't tell God to come. Or we can, and God might bless it because he blesses our crap. And he does sometimes. But what's the better way? The better way is to stand back and say, I don't know what to do here. God, I am giving you this section. God, I am allowing you to take this bit of my life and to, and to fill it and to change it and to make it into something powerful and different. And then once God makes the difference and God reveals the way and God empowers us and God fixes the people and prepares them for us to come and speak the word, then we're able to strike with precision, with meaning, and with purpose because it is not of our will and doing but of God's leading and the latter is better than the former always and so as a church I am calling you to be a people of prayer and we don't prayer we don't prayer we don't pray because we don't schedule prayer we, we don't pray because we get so busy and caught up and so take your schedule take your book take out your google calendar and make a note this time is prayer time even if it's 10-15 minutes schedule your prayer Secondly, I would say, don't wait to pray. Somebody's going to come along to you and, and, and tell you some story and, or so-and-so is hurting with this or a situation. You'll say to them or you'll say to yourself, I'll pray for it later, which is another way of saying, I'm going to forget and never pray at all. Right? Yes? <laughs> so don't wait. Stop. Stop. Right there. In that moment, pray. Pray for that person. Pray for that situation. Say, okay, before you take off, before you hang up, I've been working on this myself when I get a phone call. Don't hang up. I'm going to pray right now for you. Pray right now. Don't wait. Finally, start sanctifying things. I love that passage. You know, I never read 1 Timothy that same um, in that way before where, where my child and my house and my car and my time and my moment and my trip to the grocery store that, that absolutely everything could be used to God's advantage, that everything could be used to proclaim the gospel, the mystery of God's grace. Everything could be used to further the kingdom of God if I would only allow God the space to do that. And I can only allow the space to do that if I give it to him in prayer. And the thing that matters most in all of this to me, and this is just me talking, so take that for what it is, is that my deepest hunger, the deepest place in me, is the desire to know God, to, to meet God, to, to, to experience God. And to, I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but the moment where it's like there is something happening here and it's more than the sum of its part. There's something that is going on here and I can't explain it. I, I couldn't put it into words in those moments where God meets me in a real, living, meaningful way and I'm changed and I can't describe it. I can't give it words because it's so much greater than any word I could give it. Those moments come when we pray. Most powerfully when we pray. 
And so my challenge to you, my invitation to you as we sing this invitation song is to be a church that doesn't just say that, but a church that does that. A church that prays with our whole heart that God would move, would shake our walls, would take all that we have and show us His glory. Would you stand with me as we sing this song?